Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 121 of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hey. And Derek Silva. Hey, Derek. Hey, Nathan. So um, we're here to, we, we frankly, we're going to do um, a kind of w- one episode to sort of catch up on things we've been thinking about this summer. But it uh, turned out that the first part of that episode really was a, it was a self-contained unit. And so we released that last week and you can check it out to hear our thoughts on developments around college sport this summer. I think it was a really good conversation and well worth listening to. We also started that episode by recapping the other work we've been doing this summer on End of Sport. Um, so again, that's another good reason to check it out so that you have a sense of kind of what the archive is if you've been missing our episode. Today, however, we're going to shift to really the other subject that has been and continue, you know, sort of always continues to be on the forefront of our minds, which is the question of trans participation in sport, which is a sort of a question of its own, and also the place that this sort of trans participation in sport question fits within larger political currents of our moment. And so I'll toss it to that conversation in just a moment. But before I do that, just a reminder, um, with the breakdown of social media, uh, the fragmentation of social media, please subscribe to the show. Above all, please subscribe to the show. Please rate and review and share the show with anyone you know who might be interested in sport, because I think that kind of word of mouth piece is probably the best way um, to, to kind of to, to spread the work we're trying to do here at this point. Um, but if you are using social media, we're still on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. We are on Blue Sky, also at End of Sport Pod. Dot sky dot social. Um, we're not really anywhere else with the podcast right now. I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll find, sort of find the resolve to do that, but uh, this is sort of straining us enough at the moment. And with that said, here's our conversation about uh, recent developments in trans participation sport and why we all need to care about it. So what we want to talk about in this episode is this question of trans participation in sport. And I know we've talked about it a lot. Johanna had a great conversation with Frankie De La Creta earlier this summer, and you folks should definitely check that one out. There are plenty of other episodes in our archive where we discuss it. But the reason we're coming back to it is because it's becoming more significant as an issue, uh, not just in sport, but quite frankly, in political cult- and cultural life of, of our world right now. Uh, and so I think we need to we need to continue to take it exceptionally seriously, and we need to keep talking and thinking through sort of the implications and the ways in which it's being mobilized and weaponized, um, and and how we can resist that. And um, so, sort of the substance of this conversation, we're going to draw on some of the work that we have done this summer, specifically. Um, I've written this summer about Policy Seven Thirteen in New Brunswick, Jordan Peterson, and this question of trans participation. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit and explain what I mean there. Um, Johanna, you have also written about your own experience as a cis ally and what that means in The Guardian. Uh, and, I, and I want to start there. So could you talk to us, Johanna, about your article, why you wrote it, and sort of the response you received? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of a lot going on in that piece. So like if I leave something out, don't hesitate to like nudge me or kind of uh, prompt me to, to say say something about it. But um, as I said on Twitter, and you two know this well, because I've been thinking about that piece for like over two years now, um, that basically 
a couple years ago, um, I started to see some of the uh, women, predominantly like cishet white women, who really um, kind of made a name for their for themselves and did a lot of really good work in the sport field in terms of fighting sexual abuse with respect to like Larry Nasser and all that stuff. And um, some of these women, I, I viewed them as heroes. I know heroes are problematic. We should not heroize people, but that's just kind of what I did. And I knew at least one of them was pretty, um, would, would kind of make statements that were anti-trans um, every once in a while. But I started to notice a shift about two years ago, and especially last summer, summer 2022, where some of these individuals who had been big in fighting sexual abuse were sort of transitioning a lot of their work and a lot of their advocacy and activism against trans people and kind of, and, and the way that I saw it is like, rather than sort of helping um, this group of, of, of minoritized, ex- historically excluded people being trans people, rather than kind of like helping them along with, you know, fighting sexual abuse, they were distinguishing themselves from trans people. And initially they would still recognize trans women as women. They did that for a long time. And then a couple of them started moving away to straight up, to straight up misgendering trans women um, and really getting, going really hard, right, doing a really hard turn to the right in terms of their anti, their rhetoric that's anti-trans. And so I wrote this piece, um, came out in early July for The Guardian. And it's something that I, I spent a really long time thinking about and writing in part because I really didn't, on the one hand, I wanted to talk about my own experiences with sexual harassment, which listeners know a bit about and people on Twitter know a bit more about because I've talked about it. But I really wanted to like put it in writing and go in some depth about it and just show the like layers of it, how the sexual harassment of cis women, because swimming, women swimming um, is, is comprised mainly of cis women, mainly of cis white women, mainly of cis uh, heterosexual white women like myself. And I really wanted to dive into those experiences and show how like anti-blackness and sex- sexism, misogyny, anti-transness, how all of these things in some way were like encapsulated in a lot of what I went through. Um, and then use that as a way to say, you know, like the, the real sort of enemies, the, the real perpetrators of harm when we're talking about sports, not just women swimming, but in sports in general, they are not trans women. They are not the trans women that anti-trans activists are making them out to me. They are not like the, the kind of sexual dangers in the locker room that anti-trans people want us to see them as. Um, instead the real perpetrators are cis men. And as I argued in my piece, a lot of them, uh, because most of the people who have power in sport are cis white men, those are the ones that continue to sexually harass and abuse and hurt cis, um, cis, cis women. And so rather than kind of scapegoat and use trans women as these, you know, sexual dangers in the locker room, the people who are, you know, really, they're the ones that are quote unquote, destroying women's sport that actually, that's used as a distraction. I, I think it's used as, as a distraction away from the cishet white men that still dominate, that still dominate our bodies and try to control us. And so I think that was um, kind of in a nutshell, like the thrust of the piece was to say that we need to be allying. And ally is a really complicated word. I'd rather use like cis accomplice. That was a word that I used um, when I gave a presentation at NAS uh, last fall. Uh, was that I don't see myself as a cis ally. I see myself as more as like a cis accomplice. Um, and in working in, in solidarity with trans people, 
Um, but this idea that we need to be like locking arms and walking alongside and with uh, trans people because they're the ones who are fighting like the absolute most dire fight right now. And they're mainly they're mainly facing it alone because cishet white women such as myself, you know, cry white women's tears and see themselves as like the greatest victims of world history and contemporary developments. But that we need to stand next to them and fight alongside them because our fights are they're linked. They're fundamentally linked. The same people that are sexually abusing and harming us are the same people that are enacting a lot of these anti-trans policies and want to exclude, not not only just exclude trans women in particular, but are really aiding and abetting this genocidal fight to erase trans people from existence. Um, So that was my piece in a nutshell. But yeah, if there are specific things that um, Nathan or Derek you think would be worthwhile going into, I'm happy to dive more into it. Well, actually, I, I would just follow up with the, that question of the follow-up. Sort of, sort of. Mm. You've done a great job of taking us through sort of the, the project of um, the article itself. Um, and I guess two things. Like one, I'd be interested to hear you elaborate a little bit more on this this sort of term accomplice versus mm. ally. Not so much because I want to fetishize the term mm. ally, um, but but rather it's interesting because the connotation that I get immediately from accomplice is like an accomplice in committing Mm, a crime, mm -hmm, you know, or a mm -hmm. transgression. And so um, it's interesting because like, well, I'm just, I'm just fascinated because on one way I'm I'm sort of immediately thinking the implication then is that, that, that to, to act against gender norms or to non-conform is a kind of transgression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is against the patriarchal model, but on the other hand, it's not like, and it's framed as criminal from the standpoint of a patriarchal model. Um, but I don't think that we are viewing it as actually like unethical, right. right? Of course. So I'd be I'd be really curious to hear the sort of the rationale of that position, and then also just a bit about how um, your piece has been taken up, and and you, if you feel like it was able to sort of advance the conversations in the way that you were aspiring to. Yeah. So honestly, I I started thinking about the word accomplice. Uh, my friend Najeli, who we had on the show a while ago, I can't even remember. Um, he used to uh, do the. Um, Crossing the Lane Lines podcast about Black aquatics history. And he actually used the word to say that I I was an accomplice. And at first I was like, oh, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. And he basically was like, an accomplice is someone who is going to help us, exactly as you said, Nathan, like transgress these oppressive norms and really help us commit and help us do the work that like the patriarchal structure would have us think are like crimes, are transgressions. And so I think like this kind of maybe this quote unquote kind of criminal element of it is kind of like true in a way because we are like trying to push back against, you know, legal structures, social structures, cultural ones, et cetera, that like the dominant uh, forces in society like want us to abide by. Um, I I have to say I haven't kind of theorized it maybe in like the most thorough way, but that's kind of how I understand it is sort of like, I'm willing to kind of like do what's necessary. I'm not just like an ally that's going to like wave a flag, right? And I think that's why the term ally is really problematic. And actually at NASH, the National, the North American Society for Sport History, um, there was a speaker who talked about like, this is what it means to be an ally. And like the rest of the weekend, everybody, and when I mean everybody, I mean tons of like white uh, presenters at the conference we're like bringing up this question and in their presentations, like, am I acting as an ally? And I just, it just got to be kind of like this rote thing that everyone was saying. And so I just feel like that term has really lost any usefulness it might have had. 
does it mean that like accomplice is like the best word? I don't know, but I, I guess I kind of do like this idea of sort of like transgressing and kind of like fighting back and alongside people in a way that could be deemed like criminal, um, just simply because that's how the, how, um, kind of society is structured. Um, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. And just, to, I know I asked you a second question, but just to follow mm-hmm. up on that, um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I get, I get, I actually absolutely get what you're saying about the kind of debasement of the term allyship and the way that something sometimes when it becomes um, widely taken up, it it it, it, beca- it gets diluted mm-hmm. of the meaning that maybe it originally had mm-hmm. or the kind of political weight and effect that it was desired to have, um, and that's something to take really seriously. And and I and I, and I this is not by way of sort of saying that we, we shouldn't care about language or we shouldn't take language seriously because I, I know people will sometimes take that approach and I, and I think that's actually quite problematic. I'm, I'm not suggest I think that we can have a material and ideological um, analysis at the same time that these two things are, like, are both working together and part of that like language is part of this sort of ideological piece that has material impact. So I, I'm not dismissing that mm-hmm. at all. Um, I was thinking though and, and, and this is not in an antagonistic way, right? Because I think we're more brainstorming as opposed to mm-hmm. sort of like um, litigating the, the terminology we're talking about here. But um, my concern almost with accomplice as a term off the top of my head is if you start to think about how a term gets taken up in popular mm-hmm. culture, if you start trying to use it, because like often that's the point of like a language politics, right? Like if we use the term campus athletic worker, we use it a lot partly because we want to goad mm-hmm. people, we want them to yeah. see it and be defamiliarized by it and be bothered by it and start talking about it. And we use a term like that because we think it has the denotation and connotation we want, right? So it's like the, the more we're using that word and we see that word circulating, the more we think it's doing the work we want it to do. But the danger I feel with the term accomplice is if we think about the current climate around um, trans people in general and the cr- literal criminalization of trans people in general, a term like accomplice, which has a criminalizing um, connotation, it feels to me like it's, it's almost like, yeah, you are yeah. a cop. Like when, when people take that up, it's like you are an accomplice in doing something wrong. Um, and that, that's sort of, it seems like it almost can be easily deployed against those who are using the term since we're not that, si- I think we're less siloed than ever. Right? Once upon a time, I think like ac- things that happened in academic spaces we're largely confined to academic spaces, but we see through social media much more of a spillover now, right? And I think that it's worth being cognizant of the way that like Jordan Peterson, who like likes to dunk on academic things, right? And then popularize them, might take up that kind of like. I think part of me is thinking like, fuck Jordan Peterson, <laughs> fuck what he thinks. I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm not saying that you're wrong at all. Um, and I honestly would never, I I didn't even, how do I say, I don't use that term because I give it to myself, right? Like Najee said it and I was, and I kind of chewed on it for like six months or whatever. And I I haven't, I mean, again, it needs more thought and I'm not saying that like you're wrong, but I think I'm kind of like, fuck, fuck Jordan Peterson in terms of like dictating the language that we should and should not use or, or that minoritized communities should and should not use to describe um, the people around them who like help them in their fight against oppression. Um, mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I welcome criticism, right. I, I, I use it because it, it, it's something that makes sense, but, um, it doesn't mean that it's not problematic and that it won't change. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, this is always the question is it's like, cause you, 
if one term is adopted, this sort of semiotic understanding of um, allyship is adopted by a large group of people that say Jordan Peterson and those those fascist folks um, tend to disagree with. They'll pick up on that and they'll use that to um, to demonize the the group that they want to in front of their followers. And then yeah. Then you move it. Okay, so then it's no longer ally. So you decide, oh, it's co-conspirator or, or mm. it's um, it's some other term. And then they just move on that term. So I, I'm I, like, I, I, I understand the the hesitation there to, um, to kind of be picky about the language, um, but at the same time, like you have to use language to to describe things, right? We have, we have to, and I agree that allyship has become a kind of catch-all that people, especially academics who don't actually do anything, who don't have, like, there's no follow-up to what they're saying other than the words that are coming out of their mouth, that people have adopted this term and it's it's been watered down um, like an incredible amount. And I, I like at least the quest for using language that actually stimulates action rather than um just like i'm in your corner that that's kind of what i hear when i hear the word ally it's just like oh i'm i'm with you mm-hmm. okay well what does that mean what are you are you getting on the ground are you right. are you protesting are you doing things are you um engaging in civil disobedience when necessary are you um so yeah i see the hesitation i see kind of like this is, this sounds like both sideism that I'm doing here, but I see like what both of you are saying. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, and, and just as a, I was just gonna say, I I don't even, I mean, I I don't know. I think my presentation, I said the word like solidarity work to describe the work yeah. that I do, rather than like the label, because it because yeah. you know I haven't I haven't thought about it enough, which probably is wrong and it's probably bad, but like I just at this point would rather describe the work that I do rather than like the label that I give myself. Yeah, actually, I agree with the point I was going to make is in agreement with that. Like, to me, I think what kind of comes from this self-determinative language Mm. is really important. And I am not making the same claim like, well, we should, people should call themselves what will read well for Jordan Peterson. No, that's a completely separate question. Like people, there's a fundamental ethical, ontological need for people to express themselves in the way that is appropriate to them and that defines who they are in the most sort of authentic seeming to them way. Um, And that's just, that's not a tactical question. That's, that's a expression, a question of expression and identity that is um, I think unrelated to tactics and shouldn't be related to tactics. But I, I, I think agreeing with what Johanna just said, like, I don't think it's that important in the same way. Like if you're just trying to do work to save the lives of trans people who are under genocidal threat, it doesn't really fucking matter what you call yourself yeah. or what you are called. Like we shouldn't spend a lot of time on that. And that's why I actually do think it's more of a tactical mm-hmm. question because if you're using language that could be weaponized against you and cause harm, it, the term is problematic. Yeah. It's doing something problematic. Yeah. We shouldn't like, we shouldn't use language that is, that gets us into trouble for something that doesn't actually matter. Yeah. Know? But wouldn't, wouldn't like, wouldn't Jordan Peterson just pick up any term that becomes popularized amongst amongst the group of let's just say the group of allies or the the group of co-conspirators or accomplices well, this is why i wonder like is, is like does it does it matter that much that a term like ally like i, mm-hmm. I don't think we should spend mm-hmm. a lot of time being like i'm an ally yeah. here's how i'm an ally like i think that that's not important but like does it actually matter that much 
if we like use that term or don't mm-hmm. use that term, like what, as we were both saying, like what matters is what people actually yeah. are doing yeah. in, in this moment. And um, anyway, I mean, I think yeah, I, we honestly, we've belabored we've yeah, that point. <laughs> well, I was going to say too, like, you know, I don't know if we're all, I don't know. Again, we're not the ones to say whether like, yeah. like we yeah. have opinions and expertise to an extent about like the usefulness of that language, but like, are we the ones that should be determining whether we should use it or not? You know, like, I, yeah. I think that's, well, I think it's more of a question, though. I, I hear what you're saying, but like, I, I shouldn't determine what a trans person says about the, their own identity. But like, we're literally talking about terminology that is applied to pe- to like yourself, yeah. right? Like, you're talking about what, what you are called. You're not talking mm-hmm. about what someone yeah. else is called. Yeah, that's fair. So I actually think like, although it's in the it's in the interest of someone else, that's why I think it's a different mm-hmm. question. Like, it, and it, it's more of a like. I, I think the opinion of the person who has more at stake is probably the most important opinion mm-hmm. yeah. in this. But I do think that like talking about what you should be called is something that you also should have an opinion about, yeah. probably. Like that doesn't seem like a, a, that's misguided to yeah. have an opinion yeah. about that. And it's you're right. It's a strategic tactical question. Mm-hmm. What's the best tactic for getting accomplished the, the the things that you want to get accomplished? And are you? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because your identity is not like being an ally shouldn't really be your identity. Yeah. Like that's a stupid thing for your identity to be. <laughs> the reason why you're an ally or whatever is because you don't want people to be dehumanized. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like that's there should there's no ontological need for your existence as an ally because if you actually end the dehumanization, that 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 position, that identity disappears. Mm-hmm. It should disappear ultimately, yeah. right? Um, because there shouldn't actually be a need for that. There's only a need for that because of violence that's being enacted. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, it's only a tactical question. It's a way, it's a way of resisting violence as long as there is violence. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, to go back to your second question about the response, I mean, I guess one thing that I'll say is, I mean, a reason why I waited so long to like write it. And in addition to the fact, it just took me a while to like kind of put the ideas together and talking to people and, you know, hearing, learning a lot from people like Frankie and, Carly Chardonnay Webb and um, Sydney Bauer and, you know, people who are really like much more expert and, and issues of not only like anti-transness, but also cis, it, cis issues as, as Carly Chardonnay Webb would say, but, you know, cis issues with trans people um, is that I, I was like afraid of the, the backlash, right? I mean, we know like how much backlash um, from Jordan Peterson and pe- other people like that when it comes to people, not, not just trans people, people speak up in defense and in solidarity with trans people. Um, and I mean, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but the three of us have an article that should be coming out late summer, sometime in the fall about our experience during the Dan Dockett stuff. And, um, something I didn't include in that piece was like the personal toll that it took within, from the people in my life who like made me feel really abandoned and like really blamed me for what happened. Um, and kind of how harmful that was. And I'm still working in therapy on some of that because it just like the, the trauma was, was pretty severe. And so I was really worried about if I were to write this piece, um, not only would I maybe not do a good job of it and not like represent uh, my experiences, but maybe I would like talk over trans people and make myself seem like the number one victim. But then also it was like, what might the backlash be like? How bad might mm-hmm. it be? And what impact might that have on like my health and stuff like that and safety? Um, and I mean, I guess two things about the response is that one, like there was a ton of positive response and, um, that I, I wasn't quite expecting a lot of people, um, both trans people, cis people, non-binary people found it like compelling, or at least they told me that, um, 
they really appreciated that I wrote it and that they thought that I connected the ideas really well and kind of showed how our two communities have so much in common. Not that trans, tran- I should be clear, trans people don't doubt that cis people have something in common with them. It's really that cis people don't see themselves as needing to be in solidarity with trans people. I want to be very clear, this is a cis issue. This is not a trans issue. Yeah. Um, because trans people by existing are not causing the issue themselves, right? Um, and so I got a lot of positive feedback from people from those communities saying that they appreciated it, that they felt that it really communicated something they hadn't seen written in that way before. Um, and then, I, and then from like fellow cis people, I think it kind of explained to them something they hadn't really thought about before. And I have like a lot of friends that I swam with and people in the swimming community and sports community who are not in academia that I know on like Instagram that are not on Twitter. Um, and a lot of them were like, wow, that was really powerful. But also like, again, I'd never thought about this before. You know, I have my own experiences. I never really thought about what this should do, like how I could use it or how this should motivate me to work in solidarity with trans people. Um, so that was, that was really great. Um, of course there was like backlash, but it, it thankfully seemed pretty contained. Um, I mean, a lot of people who espouse really awful transphobic views, they really got, a, even though I blocked most of them, you know, a couple people got a hold of it and they, I think someone wrote like a, you two may remember somebody wrote like a 23 tweet thread that went like po- supposedly went point by point mm-hmm. debunking all of it. And every single one was basically like trans people don't exist. I don't know, Nathan, you might remember cause you were the one who pointed out to me, but it was like, oh, it was yeah. so bad. Yeah. I mean, it was just awful and like factually inaccurate. Um, but so they were pretty upset for a few days and, but I was expecting more backlash from the two white women, cis white women that I wrote about within the swimming community who, who are basically like, making careers out of their, like they're grifters, a careerist, a careerist grifters who are making careers out of going on like Dr. Phil and going on other places, you know, yeah. speaking with Tucker Carlson, like really like making, trying to make a career out of dehumanizing and trying to wipe away trans people from existence. So, um, that, that, that response was there and somebody, and there was a piece written in campus reform that was thankfully literally just like repeated all of my points and like, true journalism journalism, basically just repeated all the points in the piece and like kind of validated it in a way and so it could have been way worse um but yeah i I think those are kind of the two the two prongs of the responses yeah okay great thank you um all right well let's let's kind of continue this conversation now by situating it within some of the more current events we're seeing in the sports world um And one of those is that we're seeing yet another wave of moral panic as the U.S. women's national soccer team was knocked early by their standards out of the World Cup in the round of 16. And that prompted a a widespread response uh, that essentially blamed them for being, quote, woke and and supporting the rights of trans players as if that was somehow like a root cause of their performance struggles. And in fact, Donald Trump literally said on his uh, social network, and I quote now, the shocking and totally unexpected loss by the U.S. women's soccer team to Sweden is fully emblematic of what is happening to our once great nation under crooked Joe Biden. Many of our players were openly hostile to America. No other country behaved in such a manner or even close. Woke equals failure. Nice shot, Megan. The USA is going to hell. MAGA. Um, now, I would argue we should absolutely understand this as a dog whistle, given that Trump has explicitly said recently at a rally, and I quote again, 
It's amazing how strongly people feel about that. Speaking of trans issues, I talk about cutting taxes. People go like that. He politely, I'm clapping. I talk about transgender. Everybody goes crazy. Five years ago, you didn't know what the hell it was. So here we can see that Trump, you know, is, is making, as he always does, right? He says the quiet part out loud. He kind of tells us what his project is. And he's showing that the right has begun, the fascist right has begun to deploy anti-trans sentiment because it is a way of whipping up support for um, their kind of their fascist project. I'm curious um, if either of you have thoughts on how these sort of developments, how the comments on the U.S. women's national soccer team maybe are connected to a certain extent to what Johanna wrote about and, and has discussed here in this conversation and, and what that climate means for both trans people and, frankly, for cis women as well. Yeah, I mean, I can go. I mean, I, you know, it. I think it's just, how do I say? I mean, he's, he's trying to... He's trying to to convey kind of the opposite of what I said, right? That like any kind of cisgender woman who stands in solidarity with trans people, that they are like fundamentally un-American, they're woke, they fail the U.S. And I think he's trying to say like, we need to like attack them, right? That like, and also that like, I know that that it, this is a grift, right? That this is a political grift. Um, and then he's just using it to basically get clout and he knows that. Um, but of course we know that people who just use this language for cloud or for, you know, as a political ploy, it doesn't make it any less dangerous. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, I, I think part of it is, is like, it's this discursive project that's been happening mm -hmm. and like, he kind of, he alluded it to it himself by saying like five years ago, mm -hmm. like, Put a, putting a kind of temporal period on this like it's it's this discursive project that is trying to associate trans livelihood um trans life with like fundamentally un-american uh and and it's actually like pretty pretty it's a pretty successful project at least amongst that base so you like i can see why um he's doing it and it absolutely is it is a dog whistle to his fandom to his cult um, and, and, and to cult members, but like, it seems sport is this area where it's just like, it seems like, it seems like our, our world has gone down, um, a path that is beneficial in terms of inclusivity and accessibility, um, relative to where it was like 20, 30 years ago. But sport is this like arena in which the fascists are really able to be successful in promulgating this like discursive project that like we need hard gender roles. We need hard rules about who can participate in what sport. Um, it, it seems to be like this one area where we like are more people seem to be okay with being exclusive, being discriminatory, being fascist, being problematic being uh harmful to to people who are participating and like i've, I've co constantly questioned like one why is this the case and two like how do we push back in sport how do we how do we take lessons that we've learned in other spheres of life like other um environments in other institutions in the in society and apply those to sport because it seems it sounds like pessimistic, but it seems like sport is like the main 
the main arena in which this discourse is actually has actually been quite successful, even amongst people who wouldn't be necessarily like big C conservative or like wouldn't necessarily like identify as say MAGA um um MAGA uh fascist, they they I I would some of them might identify as like pretty liberal and they are buying into a lot of this discourse as well. Um, so like, even if someone might not agree with Trump, they're like, yeah, but you know, sports should be like men and women should, should be separated and no, like, like I, I don't just, I'm constantly trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we resist this in sport? Well, cause it, it's mobilizing a fundamentally misogynistic mm-hmm. kind of yeah. common sense, uh, yeah. Yeah. right? I mean, that, that's, that's the thing that's happening here. Um, and what makes it so transparent what's going on and why it's in a way maddening that the folks that Johanna was talking about who have kind of jumped in with two feet in, in supporting this project, right? The, the, the turfest movement to yeah. keep um, trans women out of women's sport. Like I, I see it with my own child. It's, it's so obvious when I look in that context, because when she, like if we, if we articulate any of these conversations to her and and i'll get into this in a second but you know it's literally happening in new brunswick so it's very relevant for us to in our household talk uh, talk about or bring up these issues and what are going on and try to make them comprehensible to a younger child um an elementary school kid you know primary school um and it's so obvious to her that it is fundamentally offensive like she finds it so offensive she's like what the fuck are you talking about like i'm not good enough Mm -hmm, at sport you're mm -hmm. saying that i'm not good enough at sport i can't compete with sport because boys are better than me what the fuck are you talking about like she's enraged immediately by it because it it it, (laughs) she sees she sees crystal clear what the messaging is right the messaging is about the fundamentally superior nature of men in quotes as athletes as competitors as anything else right and like that that is what this is entirely drawing upon. And that's why this project is not just about trans people, although in this moment, it's most importantly about trans people, but that it has this effect upon cis women mm-hmm. as well, right? Because it's just all about minimizing, diminishing, disparaging women yeah. as physical yeah. actors. Like that, that's, that's the very premise of this entire conversation, yeah. right? And yet going back to what you said, Derek, like, because, though, there continues to be a common sense around this idea that women are inherently inferior physically, it's, it becomes a kind of Trojan horse. Yeah. It's the, it's, and, they, and the right understands. Yeah. The right has seen this play out, and they see the reaction that they get, and they realize if we want to advance an anti-trans politics, and why does the right want to advance an anti-trans politics? It's a fascist project, right, mm. to scapegoat and to demonize. Yep. And it happens to be. They have low, I mean, like Nazis understood Jewish people to be an ideal target for scapegoating and dehumanization. And trans people. Well, the current. Mag- and trans people. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. But I mean, like, as the, I, I'm not trying to, like, the current fascist movement also has many yeah. targets. Yeah. Right? yeah. But I'm trying, what I'm trying to center is like, which the predominant mm. target is in a particular moment, right? Because there's like defer, there's a discursive impact there to sort of to center a lot of these rhetorical elements against a particular group. And you can, you can, you can build that out. But 
Um, I would say that like the, the primary target yeah, of the Nazis yeah. discursively was Jewish people. And the pr- this is but this is my point. The primary target, not the only target, but the primary target for the MAGA movement today has become yeah. trans yeah. people, right? Which is why we have to be like, I mean, more than anything else, this is why we all have to take it exceptionally seriously yeah. because the genocidal implications mm-hmm. are clear. And also because like this is the work that they are doing. Like, what is the work they're doing? This is why a, a Jordan Peterson uses terminology like woke capital, yeah. right? It's all a form of misdirection. They are very effectively highlighting real existent problems with the political economy of, of our society. Unlike liberals, they are not pretending that somehow we live in an equitable, just world. Mm-hmm. They are, and Trump did this from the start with his discussion around the swamp, yeah. right? The idea has always been like, there is corruption. There is economic corruption. There is greed. People in America and beyond don't have enough in terms of material resources to survive. And you know what? That analysis is correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what they do instead of what I think a, a, a honest and accurate analysis would be a critique of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And to, to locate the capitalist class as the source of that problem and the capitalist state as the source of that problem. Yeah. And therefore, you're right. The Democrats, like the Republicans, are a problem precisely because they act in service to capital. Yeah. That's all true. The solution would be an anti-capitalist solution, mm-hmm. right? But instead, what happens is we have a, the, the MAGA movement is actually driven by a capitalist yeah. class, right? Like the capitalist class is behind it. So, of course, the target, the, the responsabilization of this can't be with capital mm-hmm. because that's themselves, mm-hmm. Right. So that's why we see Elon Musk, for instance, perfect example, right? A literal capital, one of the, the most successful capitalists in the world today, happily jumps on this bandwagon, right? To speak about something like woke capitalism, yeah, because the misdirection that that's occurs, right. and this goes back to what Derek was saying, the misdirection that occurs is because we have seen marginal, incremental, but real growth in terms of the, and I use this word because I think it is rightly problematic, toleration, mm-hmm. right? The toleration by this sort of capitalist liberal society of groups that have been historically marginalized because there is slightly more space afforded to the groups, slightly more toleration. Toleration is not enough. That's what I'm saying. It's not sufficient. Yeah. This isn't a legitimate end point. Yeah. But there has been more toleration. And that fact, that increasing visibility, especially in online spaces, right, allows for this, and this is where the sleight of hand occurs, allows for these, this capitalist class to say the problem, the reason why, quote unquote, I'm not, I'm not making this point, but quote unquote, real, authentic Americans are suffering, i.e. especially this idea of like a white working mm-hmm. class. And again, the working class, the white working class, the non-white working class, the whole working class is suffering, mm-hmm. right? But the reason why the white working class is suffering according to the logic of woke capitalism is because what they once had has been taken yeah. from them by the woke. Yeah. And the wokes, of course, includes black people. That's always part of this conversation. But right now it's trans people. Yeah. Trans people mm-hmm. are being low are being cited as the cause of all the problems in America today. Wow. The problems yeah. of woke yeah. capitalism, right? It's all being redirected and misdirected at trans people. That's the scapegoating yeah. that's occurring. That's the demonization that's occurring. And weirdly, it's happening through sports. Well, I don't think it's that that's weird. I, I don't think it, that's, I think that's my point. I don't think it's that okay. weird at all. I think the, I think people, I think we, we as a society are so wedded to patriarchy, so wedded to this heterosexual way of life 
that that it comes out most obviously and most efficiently in the world of sport. That's the most efficient way that the right can actually tap into the fact that we as a society, right, left, up, down, every, everyone is so wedded to heterosexism and patriarchy that um, the way in which folks can get into that and tap into that weddedness, even if we don't uh, like off the, at the surface, like agree, or like we wouldn't self-identify as someone who is wedded to, to patriarchy, um, sport, it, it comes out just how wedded we are comes out in sport because, um, we think that that, the, the gender divide, um, is, is so important to the sport system. So I think another, in like, in healthcare, I don't think people have those discussions. In education, I don't think people have those discussions as, um, or or uh, have discussions about exclusion as much. Like, you'll, people will agree that like folks should have access to education, uh, access to healthcare for the most part. I know that that is not real in in many U.S. states currently, but in sports, it truly is. And it's easy to get people to jump on board the fact that you can't have a man playing against women that is just unfair like even people who are so-called progressive seem to agree to that point and well, that's how they they um recruit if you will well and i mean that's that's the whole capitalist structure right that we like fail like this language of like failure right like nice shot megan megan right this idea that like if you believe and buy into these quote-unquote like woke issues like you are going to lose and that is like the absolute worst thing in capitalist society and also within sports, right? So like you brought up the word fairness, right? And that's what all of this like pivots around or like that's the language that's being used around which around which all of this pivots, right? This idea that if we allow trans people to participate in according to the gender along which they identify, which they are, right? That that is going to somehow cause this massive collapse, right? That like we, apparently we're so fragile both it's like, an, like, you know, in the U.S. in terms of a global capitalist sports system is so damn fragile that if we allow trans people to participate in the category that aligns with who they are, like, God forbid, everything is like the USA is going to hell, right? Like, and I mean, that's the, that's the whole, that's the kind of funny thing about it. Not funny, but like, that's kind of the, the, the irony underpinning all of it. But this idea that like, we have to win at all costs there's the win at all costs within capitalist sport and capitalist society, but then there's also this idea of like fairness and meritocracy, right? And we know that any within under capitalism, there is no fairness, there is no meritocracy, right? But like in U.S. culture, U.S. history, right? We, we've we've those two these these concepts have been shoehorned together. And it's like this is what makes us fundamentally American, right? So like this, I, it just yeah, it just points out the whole like fallacy, the whole like underpinnings of capitalist sport and how. You know, this is where these terms like fairness and meritocracy just come tumbling down. And I think like both of you are saying, like, I think we all know people in our lives who identify as like liberal, moderate left or whatever. And it's really, really, really hard for them to get around this idea of like fairness and competition. Like they just cannot imagine that sports could be used for play, the purposes of play and play only. Mm -hmm. Right. And I keep going back to that episode with Dion Kohler, I really need to go, I need, need to go back and listen to it. But like this idea that maybe people could participate in sports for reason, 
reasons other than like strictly winning or losing or scholarships or whatever, right? right? People just cannot imagine it. And so, and I, I don't mean to like bring it back to my piece, but like I will, because like, I think what people found, some people found compelling about it, what some, what some like felt like women who identify like I do is that it gave them language to like argue, um, argue from a human rights perspective. And I know the ter- the phrase human rights is really problematic. So like people use it as a way to like further entrench inequalities, et cetera, et cetera. But like in terms of packaging it from an ex- from the perspective of like, we want to ensure that trans will have the right to exist and to thrive and to fail and do all of the things that everyone else should do, right? Then being able to argue from the perspective of like, we really need to protect everyone's bodies and if we come from that perspective, we can develop some, some linkages and solidarity. But of course, the way that this is all positioned here, it's all like a zero-sum game. Um, and I just think, yeah, these terms like fairness, meritocracy, all of these things, gender binaries, they come crashing down immediately. And again, that is what people are so damn afraid of. And they're so damn afraid of it that they want to erase a whole group of people from, from being able to exist, which is like, which is the really awful thing. Well, and that brings a lot of threads yeah. together because I think in a way what we're talking about is like you, you got at this idea of the fragility mm-hmm. and that what we have is like there is social fragility in the sense that capitalism is fragile and it creates fragility in people's mm-hmm. lives in terms of their ability to reproduce themselves and survive. And yet one of the ways in which capitalism does reproduce itself and bolster itself in the face of that fragility is through liberal discourse, mm-hmm. right? Which is to say, and you, you actually gestured to this, Johanna, even the language of human mm-hmm. rights, the yeah. language of fairness, the language of justice, this entire artifice of yeah. America, right, is a, a mechanism for the social reproduction of capitalism. And sport is incredibly useful mm-hmm. ideologically as this supposed place in which we have within the lines of the game, right, rules that apply equally to everyone. So it is this real, like, a, it's a beautiful kind of ideological superstructure for capitalism and for so, and as part of a liberal project, you know, and competition is fair, and so it's just justifying everything about the capitalist project, right? And yet we have people feeling this profound insecurity, despite the fact that the system is they're being told that they live within this world of fairness. And what we see here is this way in which I think the, the fascists are brilliantly deploying the liberal logic, right? In order to, um, like, against liberals, though, in a way, because the fascists and liberals are not the same, but when it comes to sport, they're deploying this liberal logic of fairness in order to um, pin responsibility for the actual fragility of capitalism upon trans people. Mm -hmm. And that's very confusing, right? That's like, there's a lot of very confusing threads coming together and tying up in a big knot. And for the average person, it's extremely difficult to untie mm-hmm. that knot, but they feel a lot of truthiness yeah. in it mm-hmm. when they're confronted with it, right? Because these notions of fragility, these notions of fairness that they've been taught have been the most fundamental thing, right? These are all things that speak truthfully to them about their experiences in life. And so that's why we can get, I think, the trans participation sport piece as a kind of Trojan horse mm-hmm. for a fascist mm-hmm. project even though it doesn't actually in any way, shape, or form address the actual material privation people experience, even though it isn't a real articulation of what fairness means, because what fairness really means is people being able to live and express themselves as the human beings they are and not be genocidally reduced 
you know, from the world. Um, but, but it, but just, it just feels right. to people. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, yeah, I mean, I just, I even have people who are, they're not like moderate, they're more left than that, that have asked me. And I think I, I understand the question and I've struggled with this too, is sort of how do I respond to people who ask me, what about the scholarships? What about fairness? What about this? What about breaking Olympic records, right? What if Leah Thomas had been allowed to go to the Olympic games? What then? You know, cause they, they want to be able to understand better and they want to be able to respond to these questions. And I mean, the answers that I've developed over time, and I'd be curious, you know, what y'all's are, although I'm pretty sure I know what they are is like, well, if college was free, then scholarships wouldn't be an issue, right? Like if we actually had like a national system that made colleges free, um, then, then that the scholarships wouldn't be an issue. Or, you know, if, if winning an Olympic gold medal was not something that athletes needed in order to survive financially, right? If it wasn't tied to the nation state, if it wasn't as part of this Olympic imperial project that I'm doing for my book, right? Then like maybe, maybe these things wouldn't matter so much. If, if it was just about getting on the field, getting in the pool, you know, shooting some hoops with friends, whatever it is, if it was really centered around people's health their confidence, their well-being. Again, all of these words that are also problematic, but you know, do have some meaning to them. If it was actually about like centering people's centering everybody's health, bodily autonomy, you know, ability to make choices and consent in their lives, and like these issues wouldn't matter, right? But because it's all in service of um, you know, imperialism and, and nationalism and fascism, right? All these things we've been talking about, that like these options people cannot even conceive of these options because they run so counter to like the way that at least U S society is structured. And then if you add in the fact that like, you know, NCAA sport is where many, many of the world's, uh, elite athletes go to train to prepare for the Olympic games, whether it's like during, whether they go, you know, and compete in college or they're at, you know, like club teams, they compete post-grad right? Then it also, you also kind of see the ripple effects of that as well. We're like NCAA sport is global because of the fact that that is where so many elite athletes around the world come to train, right? Um, so it just, if the circumstance, if we didn't make the circumstances so dire, then, you know, we could actually develop some solutions, but people are so wedded to capitalism. They're so wedded to these like win, lose, zero sum games here. Um, and they're only thinking about like, how can they save themselves? And I want to reiterate again, like people have come to me with these questions because, and they do it in good faith because they genuinely want to know how can I have nuanced conversations with people who maybe are liberal, moderate, left, whatever, however they, you know, um, align themselves or whatever labels they give themselves, because there are people who maybe on many other topics, maybe they're pro-choice when it comes to abortion, right? Maybe they are, maybe they want to eliminate student debt, right? Maybe on some of these more mainstream issues. They are more left on. But then when it comes to this cisgender quote unquote issue of trans women in particular in sport, this is just something that most of the US is just really far right on. Um, and you know, I, I welcome these questions. Like I said, I, I'd be curious to hear what you two offer um, in these things. But I think, you know, you're decentering people's bodily autonomy is just the way it's gotta go. Yeah, I, I mean, like I th- I think what we're talking about here is just how fundamental anti-capitalism is to allyship with folks who are discriminated against yeah and (laughs) that it's actually fundamentally an anti-capitalist project and sport here is the most 
um, obvious and manifest version of capitalism that mm-hmm. we can kind of see. And, and it, it highlights how wedded we are to that, mm-hmm. uh, like across the political spectrum. Uh, someone could be super, super left progressive socially. And then suddenly they're like, yeah, like, but the sport, uh, sport needs to stay the same. This will sacrifice everything else. My entire life work of trying to, or supposedly being an ally to folks who are discriminated against and harmed goes out the window when you talk about sport. And I think that's why it's such a, uh, uh, why the right has picked it up as such a useful wedge for them. Um, because I, again, like, yeah, you're right, Joanne. I think people are incredibly, incredibly conservative when it comes to the world of sport. And it's not, we aren't as wedded to fascist ideas um, uh, and, and misogyny and patriarchy in other forms. I've said that like four or five times. No, but I also want to bring up something that like, you know, we've been writing about Derek, which is that the concept that helps us understand a lot of the issues that Johanna is bringing up is structural coercion, right? Because the argument that Johanna, one of the arguments that Johanna was raising was the argument that, well, what about access to opportunities, scholarship opportunities and Mm -hmm. so forth in women's university Mm -hmm. sports, right? Or or in any spaces. Um, And what that relies upon is this sort of artificial scarcity that is produced within capitalism, within racial capitalism, because artificial scarcity, both in terms of like opportunities to play sports, because it can be incredibly expensive to play sports in all sorts of different ways, but also just access to universities, right? Access, like for a lot of people, those scholarships matter, not because they're an app, but they're a pathway to Olympic sports. And I I understand that they are, but that's a whole other thing, right? Because we can probabilize Olympic sports and whether we want that, but in a more... (laughs) And the the thing that I would be less inclined to problematize is that I think that higher education is, and this is something that, you know, we're seeing in West Virginia, we're seeing, this is a, this is a contested point, not necessarily among us or among most people who'd be listening to this podcast, but is a contested point in US and North American and English and beyond popular culture right now, the actual value of higher education, right? And part of the reason that the value of higher education is contested, especially in the United States, is because higher education is incredibly expensive yeah. because the user fees are downloaded upon, these are, they, are, they are user fees, so the, the costs <laughs> are downloaded upon students, right? And because of that, it is very easy to deploy an instrumental logic that says, if I am paying these exceptionally high costs, what am I getting for it? How is this going to help me in a job market? How am I going to pay back this debt, right? Which are all fairly reasonable questions to consider, right? But what that does is it has a very distortive effect on our understanding of what higher education is because it makes higher the point of higher education to be job training. Mm -hmm. But we could have a completely different model of higher education as education, which is that if it was actually state subsidized and people had genuine access to higher education, that was not through user fees, then the point of higher education could be education and the actual critical thinking, education, the, the, the more holistic model of teaching people that brought most people who work in higher education to their jobs yeah. working in higher education, which means that there is a role for the humanities and the social sciences and the natural sciences that are not just technology-based, right? But based on a, a, a theoretical even understanding of the very nature of existence, yeah. right? But these are all inherent goods in their own right. But it's hard to see that in this instrumentalized capitalist logic yeah. of higher education as we know it. And this is all, again, I'm trying to come back to the point that 
because <laughs> this is actually about scholarships and about gender mm-hmm. um, participation in sport. But the reason why it is, is because if we had genuine access to higher education for all mm-hmm. people, you wouldn't have to have a scholarship right. in order to yeah. not go into debt getting that education. Yeah. And so there would be way less of a concern about who gets what spot on what team. Yeah. Right. And then we could have a separate conversation about the value of competitive sport. Right. But it would not be tied to structural coercion. It wouldn't be tied to life chances in the way that it is in this current system. So this trans, this goes back to what you're both saying. This trans participation sport argument is anchored in a fundamentally unjust system. It is only within a fundamentally unjust system that the stakes of it are so high. And so we can't only litigate this question in the context of trans participation in sport. And as a sport question, we also have to think of it as a much broader question of political economy. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, I just want to remind you that if you want to hear more about these issues or read more about these issues, we have Johanna's piece in The Guardian, which will be linked in the show notes. And I wrote uh, kind of a trilogy of pieces in the NB Media Co-op this summer, and those will be linked in the show notes as well. Thanks so much. Thank you.